<sighs> Good morning. During this month, many years ago, my husband Gene and I noticed that night after night, after we had put our young daughters to bed, we would find little pieces of thread and shards of buttons and shiny scraps of fabrics and pieces of cookies and glitter stuffed into the cracks in our wood floors throughout the house. We'd sweep it all up, but then the next night, the sparkles and the stars would appear again. Sometimes we would find pieces of a doll's tea set, tiny saucers and cups hanging from the, down from the floor grates by a thread, affixed, of course, with great sticky wads of tape. What magic, we thought, not wanting to interfere. But one night after we thought the children were soundly sleeping, we heard the sound of little feet creeping back down the stairs and into the dining room. We peeked around the corner and saw the girls quickly stuffing what looked like tiny little notes in one of the cracks in the corner of the dining room. <clears throat> My older daughter put her hands on her hips as she saw me, and she said, well, of course, Mama. She said this with great authority. We are leaving things for the borrowers. It's almost Christmas, and we want them to be able to decorate their house for the Christmas party. We were letting them know not to come upstairs on Christmas because there will be lots of people around. Have you all read the 1950 series, The Borrowers? Has anybody read it? Yay! Well, the story tells of the relationship between tiny people who live beneath the floorboards and survive on things that they borrow from the big people who live upstairs. It is a charming series that captivated me and then my children's imaginations. Now, my young children were not particularly theatrically or artistically inclined. I think, rather, that they were doing what young children imaginatively and intuitively know to do. And we were simply, simply very fortunate to hear and to see them in action. Parents, I think, are often anthropologists of sorts, and their children are exotic primitives that also happen to be underfoot. In this case, we learned all over again how strong and real is the sense of wonder that children have, how innate and easy their way is with celebration. With each year in my girls' early life, their celebrations and rituals became more elaborate. On the day before St. Patrick's Day one year, I told the girls that leprechauns sometimes come visiting as long as they are left alone so that they can party without prying eyes. I explained that they were very naughty little guys whose parties typically got way out of hand. The girls prepared for their party just in case, leaving a tea party of sorts out for them, and they went to bed. By morning, they discovered that the whole area, in fact, the whole room had been turned upside down. The teacups on their sides, the cookies and green litter, glitter and sparkles, you see there's a theme here of glitter and sparkles, had been strewn everywhere. And of course, the great fun was seeing whether this would be the year the leprechauns would truly throw an out-of-control wild rumpus. And they were always delighted that they had. 
Each December, as the days get darker and shorter, we find ourselves right smack in the middle of the season of gloriously sparkly lights and stories. Stories of stars guiding shepherds to a new baby. Stories of oil lamps staying lit for days. Stories of Yule logs bringing back the sun. And I love the spirit of this season and the way that spirit is embodied in our culture from the miracle on 34th Street to Scrooge in A Christmas Carol and Cindy Lou Who and the Grinch and yes, also the story of the unwed homeless family, migrants really, nobodies, who were not welcomed by anyone as they looked for a place for their baby to be born, finally finding a bed of straw and a stable surrounded by animals. And here's where it gets good. The universe was glad, rejoicing with these humble parents to see that child. Not a story based on real events in history, but a story that is underway every moment all over the world. We humanists can get a little twitchy about this season, especially those of us who came from traditions we abandoned that had us believing literally in that great story and also in others. I don't carry that hurt or that baggage with me. In our house, we decorated like crazy, enjoying both Christmas and Hanukkah. Um, I would say that my most intimate um, relationship with the Christmas story was when I was given the honor of being the plum pudding in the nativity pageant at school, (laughs) a role I think I am still trying to work through. I think that the teacher was misguided in her attempt to make this very efficient, so she kind of smushed those two things together, but it's been traumatic for me ever since. (laughs) I do remember telling my girls about the hope symbolized by the Hanukkah story, but knew that the scent of their dad's latkes on the stove was probably the bigger draw. We humanists, of course, know that these stories aren't true and that Christmas co-opted the Roman Saturnalia celebration, and that there couldn't be shepherds out in the hills in that part of the world in late December. And sometimes I have to tell you, when I hear all of this, I just think we might want to get over it. But here's the deal. The UU minister, Kendall Gibbons, who has spoken here twice and who many of you have met by now, believes that the unproductive posturing of literalists of all stripes is really about a misunderstanding about time. Our ancestors, she says, understood time to be cyclical and recurring. The seasons, the tides, the days and nights, the planting and the harvest, birth and death, every part of life had its appropriate moment and everything came full circle eventually. But we, the children of the Enlightenment, dwell in another kind of time, linear time, which is a major feature of our Western cultural worldview apparently inherited by Isaac Newton some 300 years ago. Linear time resembles a conveyor belt, one that moves horizontally from past to present to future at the same unchangeable speed for all of us. 
It can be understood that on this conveyor belt, there is an endless series of containers extending into the past and on the one hand and into the future on the other. And the way we spend our time is by putting our activities into those containers as the conveyor moves us along. These containers are all the same size, so we can only put only so many activities in a given container. And then that time is used up, and the container moves into the past. Wasting time is not filling the containers as they go by. And since we know that there are a limited number of containers that will pass by during our lifetime, we're anxious about not having enough time. We are forever then racing against the conveyor belt and trying to overfill the containers so that we don't mess out. It is no wonder we've such a frantic, hyperactive world. At some point, linear time won out. It began to predominate. Judaism and Christianity were a theological move away from the earth-based cyclical worldview to the more linear sense of time, where the arrow of history points in only one direction. But in reality, though linear time continues to predominate, cyclical time is also part of our culture. But what Kendall proposes is that there is a third type of time, which she calls mythical time, as in once upon a time or happily ever after. Mythical Time does not distinguish between fact and story. Santa Claus and Sleeping Beauty and Scrooge and Moses and the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay are all archetypal figures who belong in mythical time and whose power lies in the fact that the stories associated with them continue to move us, influence us, and in many ways define us. So what of us? Someone's, some have said that humanists' over-identification with the scientific approach and its emphasis on rational thinking skills has somewhat dampened our spirits and cut us off from important parts of what makes us human. It's certainly true, I think, that as we, as um, a people move farther and farther away from the direct experience of sustaining the rhythms of the seasons and of the earth, we have no idea when there will be plums in the store because they're year-round, etc., etc. We've allowed more degradation of the planet in the name of profit, and I think there has been a disconnect there that has allowed it. Cycle of celebrations superimposed into time forms a kind of circle of repair out of the more frightening linear time which has no beginning, no end, and no repetition. It's kind of like looking at a digital watch, something I can never get used to, and seeing time only in the present moment and not the whole cycle of the day. A cycle to our year, the repetition of seasonal holidays gives us an opportunity to reflect back and look forward comfortably aware that it will come round again. I know that when I pack up the ornaments from my tree each December, I can't help but think about what life will have held for Jean and my girls and my friends 
when I unpack the ornaments again a year from now. So Bon Fu Somme is a member of the Dragara tribe in West Africa in a tiny little country the size of Colorado, one of the poorest countries on earth called Burkina Faso. She's a well-known shaman who speaks all over the world about the importance of ritual and celebration in a community. And I can only say that when I've heard her speak, there is something in me that responds with a yes. Here is what she said recently. My people, the Dagara people, live in community. Their lifeblood is ritual. As a child, I never thought much about ritual and its implications. I thought everything was a given, and everywhere I went, life would be the same as in my little village. Indeed, traveling within Africa gave me that sense of protection and care and security. However, my innocence went flying out of the window when I was thrown into the heart of the West in Michigan in the middle of winter. She wondered as she saw snow for the first time out the airport windows why so much flour was being dumped on Detroit. When she came here, there, was, there were no community, no rituals, no safety she could tap into. Life suddenly became a journey of transformation and self-discovery for this village woman. She said, a wave of grief and deadened energies took over my life. My daily realities were now painted with loneliness, boredom, and dismazement at life. I began to wonder what phenomenon was happening to me. I had never had these feelings before. And it suddenly hit home that I was being initiated. But by what? Which entities? And without a community, who would then welcome me back from this brutal initiation that nearly knocked the life force out of me? I realized, she said, from talking to people, that this was here in America the normal way of life. But something within me refuses to take that as an acceptable answer. And with determination, I began my search for community far away from home. To Soban Fu, moving to modern America with its lack of ritual and mythology and connection to one another and to the tribal ways of living felt like a brutal initiation. And yet it's how most of us live without giving it a thought. One of the rituals in Soban Fu's tribe is that it is the practice of these African villages to prepare for the birth of every child by sequestering the women of the tribe with each pregnant woman, woman until together they discover the song of this child. Throughout the pregnancy, this unborn child hears its song. At the child's birth, he is welcomed into the tribe in a circle of community surrounding the family as the village sings his unique song. And throughout his life, any transgression or rule or, or rule um, that has been broken uh, that is severe enough to merit discipline is met by the whole village standing in a circle around this beloved member, singing his song until he comes back to himself and understands who he really is and how life among them is sustained. It is the song of life 
the companions, one in recovering from illness, in grieving loss, and at the time of leaving his life. It is sung throughout his whole life. For me, this is a story of people seeing one another so clearly and mirroring back the beauty and goodness that they see there. It's such a message of love to stand with someone through life circumstances and to steadfastly communicate, I know you, I'm with you, I love you, through times of joy and of sorrow when we celebrate and also when we feel like we have lost our way. To call one another back to our best selves because we believe in each other, this ritual gives such a message of forgiveness and healing, of belonging in a community. We have nothing like that in our broader culture. But I love that we in this community place such an emphasis on the seasonal celebrations that we circle back to them every year. And that the celebrations of the seasons of our own lives are celebrated as well. Each seasonal celebration with its own mood, its own music, its own customs, each each celebration and anniversary of the ones before, helping us to celebrate what we love, to recognize what has changed and what has been lost or gained, and also what is timeless. Rituals and stories are the glue that holds the mosaic of love together. When we create rituals like we do here, where we look forward each year to seeing our children in our community lighting their candle as their names are called at the winter festival, we do it not just to see the beauty of our children's faces, which are amazing, and that would certainly be sufficient, but because by saying their name, As part of that ritual, they know they belong. This is perhaps why so many of our college-age youth return each year and continue to light those candles long after they've stopped being children. They know they belong. When our young children proudly bring a stone up and then plop it into the soup pot at Stone Soup, They know they belong. When our coming-of-age girls come off the mountain after spending 24 hours there alone during their inner quest and are greeted by the sounds of their mothers singing and drumming and whooping and hollering, they're pretty sure they'd like to fall into the ground with embarrassment. (laughs) But they know that they are loved by a circle of our community's women and that they belong. When three of our teenagers wrote their college entrance essays about their individual experience of the power of community, they experienced by taking part in our winter festivals each year. They know they belong. When one of our younger children, who had finally reached the age when he could pull down one of the banners at the conclusion of the festival as we do each year, and he realized that, as often happens, the banner was stuck, 
he became so intense that he had his job to do, that he jumped into the air, pulled on the string for all it's worth, yelling, let there be joy. And the audience roared back, joy. And he knew he belonged. And now, of course, the let there be joy, let there be peace, let there be love, and let there be hope is part of our tradition. Ritual, rituals are not unchangeable. They just need to be rooted in connection. Our celebrations team and then later our platform team looked not only at the arc of the celebration year, but also paid attention to our weekly platform celebrations and how, while retaining the persistently intellectual components that we all cherish, we could also include more heart-centered elements as well. And this wasn't at all an easy sell at first. I mean, sitting together in silence for a whole minute, singing together, maybe swaying together, greeting each other in the heart of the service, reciting candlelighting words together, really? Beyond the platform itself, did we really need all that other mumbo-jumbo, which seems suspiciously, suspiciously like relics from other times and other faiths? Candlelighting? Really? Couldn't we do just fine with a good talk, some taped music, and a coffee pot? But gradually, and ever so gently, our platforms incorporated more ritualized elements, and some were welcomed more than others. But we have come a long way from that more secular mindset of the 50s and 60s and 70s, which plagued not only ethical culture societies, but also Unitarian Universalist churches, and also crept into mainstream traditions as well, mainstream churches by stripping them of much of their beauty so that they could become contemporary and re rendering much of what was still meaningful to many anemic. Part of what we all needed back then was to remember that the poetic aspects of religion, which are always centered in the cycles of our human development, and the rhythms of the seasons and are nourished by music and touch, poetry, sim symbol, and silence are vitally important to a different and often deeper understanding of whatever topic is being talked about up here that day. Some of you have commented in the response time about times when it seems that the spoken message from the platform and the musical choice seems seamless. Not all topics, of course, lend themselves to that kind of synergy, but when they do, there's a rightness to it that's almost palpable. The more rational, intellectual aspects and the more sensual, celebratory acts, as it turned out, were not mutually exclusive, but mutually supportive aspects of an unbroken continuum that helps bring meaning to our days. I bought Barbara... Iron Reich's book, Dancing in the Streets, recently, where she describes how group dancing is thought by anthropologists to provide the attachment needed for large groups to hold together. 
This was an evolutionary advantage, she said, because larger groups were safer against predators than extended families were. Movement and music and physical touch are more primal, more effective binders of community than language. Cave paintings show people dancing, she says, but none has ever been found of individuals in conversation. So movement and singing and dancing and touch are more effective in binding us together as a community. Who knew? Even if we try to ignore the major holidays and rationally dismiss their significance, their power in inviting joy and in the relational dynamic does not go away. And it has ever been this way. The hearts of human beings have flooded with delight at the turning of the world and at being alive. There's a passage in the 3,500-year-old Sanskrit Vedanta Vedantic literature that refers to the wild beauty of the universe and how we respond to it. Quote, this is the way it is to be illustrated. When lightnings have been loosened, ah, when that has, been, that has made the eyes to be closed, ah. That fundamental life force is something in whose presence we must exclaim, ah. You remember seeing a newborn infant, perhaps your own, for the first time. Ah. There's so much to celebrate, so much to be delighted with, so to be proud of, so much that happens right here at Wes, to which we could sigh together from time to time, a collective, ah. In her book, Iron Rex said that a few years back, Rio de Janeiro's Copacabana Beach was in the news because spontaneous revelry broke out, a crowd of bystanders joining a group of samba dancers as they practiced for carnival. She said, and this is a quote, there was no point to it, she said, no religious overtones, ideological message, or money to be made. Just the chance, which we need much more of on this crowded planet, to acknowledge the miracle of our simultaneous existence with some sort of celebration. So, find ways to celebrate. Bring magic to the lives of the children you know. Find your ah as often as you can. Happy holidays, and join us next week as we celebrate the return of the light at our annual winter festival.